And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come today humbly and ask that as we have now read your word and realize that we have heard from you already, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, as we walk through these verses and as we attempt to understand them and to see what and how we can obey them, Lord, we ask that even now you would begin working in our hearts, that you would soften them to the word of your gospel. Lord, that you would use the things that we hear today, the things that we read today, the things that we learn today from your word. Use that to make us look more like your son. Lord, that is our prayer, and we ask all of this in his precious name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this is an interesting passage of scripture. This is uh, a lot going on here. A, a few different things, a few different scenes are kind of covered by Luke in just a few verses. And, and to get into this and to be able to understand what we need to understand and to, to learn what we need to learn and what the Holy Spirit through Luke has for us today, we need to understand a little bit of the background. So Paul here is working in Ephesus. Now you may be familiar with the book Ephesians Later in the New Testament, Paul wrote that letter to this church. This is before all of that. This is him working on, as part of the third missionary journey, he is in Ephesus. He is working in the city. And Ephesus, if you are not familiar, is a city in Western Asia. It, is, it, it almost acts like a gateway to Asia from Rome. So it's on the western edge, and it is, it is a hub. It's a port city. It has a lot of commerce, a lot of trade, a lot of industry. It is a center for finance, and it is a center for all grades of religion. There is a, a temple there, and, and kind of the, the crown jewel of the city of Ephesus is this temple of Artemis, or Diana, depending on if you're Roman or Greek. And that was the, the goddess of fertility. And this, this temple was impressive. It was massive. It was much larger than, than most of even some of the more well-known um, 
temples that we have from archaeology and, and, and the ancient world. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, and because of that, and because of that temple, and because of the, the, just the, the melting pot cross-section of the folks who were coming and going regularly in Ephesus, there was this synchronistic view of religion that I'll take a little bit from this and I'll take a little bit from that because these things suit me and I, now I don't like that part, so I'll, I'll leave that alone. But magicians and sorcerers and incantations, these are things that are really important, really have a toehold and are, are dug into the culture in Ephesus. And this is the background in which Paul is working. This is where he's teaching. This is where he's, he's preaching. And so let's pick up in verse 11. And, and now that we know where Paul is, let's go through what Luke is telling us today about what Paul's doing. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Well, let's, let's stop right there. The first word of that verse is and. So let's go back. And. So he's tying this to something. So let's look at the end of what passage you studied last week, and we'll read, uh, let's just read verse 8 to 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning, he being Paul, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn, your version may say hard-hearted, and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul is teaching. That is what, that's what Luke is tying us into. Now, you may have a heading in your Bible over verse 11 that says sons of Sceva. That's what mine says. That is added for our benefit just to help us kind of train our mind and figure out where things are going. But verse 10 flows right into verse 11 as you're reading this. So Paul is teaching and preaching. All of the residents of Asia, both Jew and Greek, are hearing the word of the Lord as Paul's teaching it. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. So right away we see in verse 11, right away we see who is doing this work. Luke is clear to point out that it is, it is God doing this work. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even his handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to, their, to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So for two years now, Paul has been laboring. He's been teaching and preaching in Ephesus. And, and Luke tells us that alongside of that teaching ministry, there are miracles. There are miraculous events that are taking place and, and that are, are, are present in the ministry of Paul. Again, Luke is clear through inspiration who is working the, the miracles. It is God. It is not Paul. We'll see that that is important later when some folks misunderstand that arrangement. But we have got to understand that point before we move forward. We're going to talk about the handkerchiefs and the aprons and the sweat and all that stuff that, that seems strange to us. We're going to go through that, but we have got to understand as, as we move forward, God is doing the work. God is behind the miracles. God is behind the healing. God is behind the evil spirits leaving. God is behind it all. Paul is nothing but a tool. All right? So let's, let's just keep that in mind. 
Interestingly enough, in verse 11, the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to use an adjective in front of miracles. Now, a miracle is something that is a miracle, right? I mean, it happens outside of natural law and, and things that can be explained, which are amazing. Every miracle is amazing. Well, these are even apparently more amazing because Luke doesn't just say miracles. He says extraordinary miracles or, or miracles that are not the usual kind of miracles that we all have. The good ones, the extra ones. So interestingly, what is happening here is is extraordinarily miraculous, according to Luke. And then verse 12 gives us some examples of what's going on. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. Their diseases left them. Evil spirits came out to them. So Paul, by trade, was a tent maker. Paul had to work to support himself and to support his ministry. So as he was working, the the handkerchiefs and, and aprons were, think of them as like a sweat rag. He would have had something tied around his head. It's going to be hot. It's going to be sweaty. He would have had an apron on to just protect his clothing from, from the things that he's working on. And, and some commentators even think that the things that are happening here with these handkerchiefs and aprons being taken away happen outside of Paul's knowledge. Like somebody sneaks into the workshop and grabs his sweat rag and goes, ha I got something now. Let's go see my sick cousin, and see what happens with this. So if that's the case, I can imagine Paul walking back to work and going, I have lost another handkerchief, and I got sweat in my eyes. So whether Paul knows about this or not, it's not clear, but that it, it is clear that what is happening here is extraordinary. So we see these items just that have touched Paul's skin or carried away. People who are sick are healed. People who have evil spirits have the evil spirits leave them. Are these magical? Well, no, of course not. What have we learned at the beginning of verse 11? Who's doing this? God is doing this. So unfortunately, passages like this and, and others like it are misapplied. So if you're like me, your mind, when you read this, instantly goes to cable TV televangelists with fake hair and fake teeth and fake tears asking you if you just send me $99 I'll send you this prayer hanky and you'll be blessed and and, right I mean we see that and we laugh about it but that stuff still happens and and one of the kind of glaring examples of this that I have experienced in my own life happened years ago I was in college and had opportunity to take a mission trip to Romania and we went and, and worked with the local church there. And on the way home, the pastor and his wife of the church who headed up the, the trip and planned it thought we should stop in Italy on the way back and visit Rome and see the sights and, and do kind of the tourist thing there, which we did. And we saw all the, the things you see on TV for Rome, the Colosseum and Spanish Steps. And we went to the Vatican. And at the Vatican, we saw all the art and the sculpture and the Sistine Chapel and just all of this beauty. And like any good tourist destination, they had a gift shop. And on the way out of the Vatican, we went in the gift shop. And the gift shop was about the size of this room, um, maybe a little smaller. It was split in half with a wall down the middle that had an open doorway so you could go from, from either side. And we walked through and looked around and saw the odds and ends, and then we made our way through the doorway and looked around and saw the odds and ends and pretty quickly realized these are the same things that are in the first half. 
I know I have seen that Pope Mobile snow globe somewhere <laughs> before, but this one is three times the price. And then you start looking and you notice every other thing. Well, I saw this over there too, and it's three times the price, and this and this. And... So we get what we're getting from the cheap side of the gift shop and get to the cashier and, and speak to the lady who's checking us out, and her English is much better than my non-existent Italian. And I ask her, what's going on? What's, why are these things the same? She said, oh, everything on that half has been blessed by the Pope. And I thought immediately, in, instead of having some deep theological thought, I'm, my first thought is, so does he like hit the truck as it rides by? <laughs> or does he wander through at night and do the blessing after it's closed? I, I but anyway, that's the same thing. That's the same thing. That's a modern version of the same thing. It's not a prayer hanky. It's not maybe a, a, an apron or, or whatever. But it is some kind of trinket that some man who claims a special connection to God that you can't have has said a blessing over it. And that blessing, in turn, is transferred to you by virtue of your wallet. Right? That's where we are. That's what this is. So I want to give you a passage, if you, if you are able to flip over to 2 Corinthians, I want to give us a, a, a cross-reference passage here that will help us anytime we run into passages like this, where, where stuff like this is happening in the New Testament. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it, but I want it to be clear kind of what's going on here. So we have seen this, the sweat rag of Paul is healing people. We have read, you remember the passage where just the shadow of Peter fell across someone who was sick and they were healed. What's going on? Are we supposed to be doing this stuff? Are we supposed to mimic this? If you have your, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I should have said that before I started talking, so you had a minute to turn there. Sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Some of your translations of one of those three, signs, wonders, and mighty works, may say miracles, right? So what do we do? Well, Paul is telling the church at Corinth in this second letter to them what is going on. He's explaining this for us. We're using Scripture to interpret Scripture to understand that this is not something that Luke is prescribing for the church to handle as a ministry. Luke is describing a historical event. These are apostolic acts that, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, the Lord uses to link together the power of the risen cross to the power of the apostles who are working to build the early church. That's the connection. God is using this so that people can hear the gospel. That's what it is, and that's what Luke is describing here. He is describing historical events not to be mimicked, just something that we can see as God's stamp of approval that this man is my servant, he's a faithful laborer, and I'm working through him to accomplish the will of my kingdom. That is what we see. So anytime we run across things like that where Peter or Paul or any of the apostles are doing these things, keep in mind 2 Corinthians 12, 12. This is a link. This is a connection. This is a validity that the ministry of these apostles is tied to the power of the cross, the power of the risen Christ. So if we remember that, that 
helps us. So what do we do with this text then? Well, we understand it. We read it, and, and it should help us also to keep a balanced view of miracles. I'm not saying for a moment that miracles are only allowed to happen as the apostolic age. No, God can do miracles. God does what he wants, when he wants, however he wants. He still miraculously heals people. To this day, what we need to understand and have a balanced view of is that's not how the Lord has set up life to operate, right? If you read Scripture, it is clear that a faithful Christian life is tied to making yourself submissive to the written, revealed Word of God, to walking in the Spirit, to serving brothers and sisters and others with the spiritual gifts that the Lord has given us, to pursue godly wisdom, to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations, and to do all these things as we go about our normal day. That's how the Christian life looks. It's plain. It's mundane. It happens daily. It is a discipline. That's why we're told to be disciplined, because you have to stick it out. You have to work through these things as you grow and as you look more like God's son. So God, of course, still does miracles. James tells us even to, to pray for them, to pray for healing. Somebody's sick, gather the elders together, anoint them with oil, and pray for healing. Ask God to heal. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, we're commanded to do it. But don't be discouraged if the things, miraculous things that you may pray for are not happening. Don't for a moment think that God's not working. Don't for a moment think that he's forgotten you or your loved one or whatever situation is going on. And, and, and don't think that miracles no longer happen. They happen every day. The greatest of which is new life. When a sinner recognizes and understands the degree of their sinfulness and that that sin is against a holy God who is way more holy than we could ever understand or imagine. As much as we think he's holy, he's even more holy than that. And as we study and read, especially you read the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and you see God's standard laid out, you think, I can't do that. And you're right, you can't, and neither can I, and neither can any person who has ever lived. So we have to have somebody do it for us. Galatians, Paul tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. We just finished Christmas. We just finished studying that incarnation, the first coming of Christ as a baby in a manger. Humble, stepping out of heaven. The choir song talked about that today. Stepping out of heaven, taking on flesh, becoming like his children to fulfill the things we couldn't do, to live up to the law, to fulfill the prophecies about his life and his death and his resurrection. And because of that, he willingly laid that life down for sinners. That perfect life that is the only one ever to meet God's standard was freely given. In the hands of Rome, he was crucified. But because he was perfect, death had no claim. Three days later, God raised him. And we are offered not only new life, but righteousness, the righteousness of Christ 
in exchange for our sinfulness. So that miracle happens daily, and it's definitely extraordinary. So, continuing on, verse 13. Here we go. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now, that's quite a title on your resume, right? Itinerant Jewish exorcist undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who have evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by, I adjure, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So what is happening here? So itinerant Jew, we know that there are Jews in the area. Paul was teaching in the synagogue. We read about that at the end of verse 18 or chapter 18. And we see that the Jews and Greeks are hearing the word of the Lord taught as Paul is teaching and preaching through Ephesus. So there are enough Jews here to have a synagogue and to have some kind of a presence. It's not surprising. It's a big city. A lot of folks coming and going. It, it, it stands to reason that they would be around. So who are these guys? What's going on? Well, these guys misunderstood who was doing the work. They see, hey, that guy took Paul's sweaty handkerchief to his sick grandmother, and now she's better. And I've also seen and heard that they take his apron that he uses at his workshop, and evil spirits are driven out. And he's, he's preaching about some guy named Jesus. We're going to use that name. And leverage that into a nice little business venture for ourselves. So this passage relates a strange series of events. Apparently, they decide they're going to try this out. Hey, we we hear about this name. We're gonna we're gonna go get. Uh, we found a guy who is possessed. We're gonna make a few bucks and dislodge the evil spirit from this guy so they traveled around doing that and there has been uh, evidence through archaeological excavation where some of these scrolls we're going to read about that in a little bit but some of these scrolls have been found where these incantations and magic spells and different things um, are recorded and what it what appears to be the case is they will pick and choose the more exotic the name of the god or goddess, the better. If it sounds good, then it gets into the book. And, and there's evidence that the names of um, patriarchs from the Old Testament, there are evidences that people do this in the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are instances where the name Yahweh is found in these. Be careful. Be careful as we're getting ready to find um, the name of the Lord is not to be trifled with. It's not to be used for personal gain. And it certainly is not mechanical in how it's used in terms of you get a result that you want. So the Exodus were doing this. They were going around. They have, hey, we've got a great new name. Let's try this. And what's odd is they even use the name secondhand. I adjure you in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. Nah, we don't preach him. Paul does. Right? And so they, they try this secondhand. They try this magic. They're using it as a, as a magic word. But no doubt they had heard what's going on in Paul's ministry, and they want in on it. It's a good way to 
make a buck. Enter the seven sons of Sceva, verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So every commentary that I read in, in preparation for this is quick to point out nobody knows who Sceva is. Luke lists him here as a high priest. None of the historical records of the Jewish high priest that list all of them up until the captivity list this guy as a high priest. None after captivity list this guy as a priest. So who is Sceva? Well, there are a couple of options, and, and some various commentaries throw out various options. He, if he, in fact, even is Jewish, it says he is, but, you know, we'll see. Um, if he's Jewish, maybe he is of the tribe of, of Levi. Maybe he is a, a Levite. Maybe he is in that priestly line. Maybe he's even a priest, just not the high priest. Maybe. Maybe he's the high priest of some false god, some idol that he picked up along the way on the way to Ephesus or in Ephesus. That's possible too. Or maybe he's just a liar. And he says, yeah, I'm a high priest. They pull these names out. So imagine this. You've got a business as an itinerant Jewish exorcist, and you can fabricate this story that says, hey, back in my hometown, there's one day a year, Day of Atonement. The high priest, that's me, goes into the Holy of Holies. It's the only day of the year I'm allowed to do it. I'm the only man on the planet who's able to do it. And I bring in the blood from the sacrifice to cover the sins of my people for a whole year. Now that's quite a padded resume and some level of credibility for you and your boys if you can get people to believe that. And that seems, based on what we're getting ready to find out, a likely the likely thing that happened. Verses, let's look back, verses 15 and 16. So they have everybody around for this exorcist. They've got the man who is possessed. They command him in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons are doing this. And what does it tell us in verse 15? The spirit speaks to them. But the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? Think back through the Gospels. Anytime Christ encountered someone who was, had a demon possession, if the demon speaks, does the demon ever need to be introduced to who he's speaking to? No. They know who Christ is. They're some of the first ones in the, the New Testament, in the Gospels, to actually correctly identify him as God's son. They know they don't want anything to do with Jesus. And continuing on, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. So you say Paul's preaching Jesus, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul as a faithful servant of Jesus. But who are you guys? Never heard of you. Sceva's not in the history books. Neither are his seven sons. You're not Christ's. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't have any authority over me. I don't have to do anything you tell me to do. That's basically what the Spirit is telling him. And then he proves it in verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
Now, at first you may think, well, they used Jesus' name, and I get it. They were using it selfishly, but the name is powerful, right? Certainly, we've sang that today too. The name of Christ is powerful. And, and think of it like this. In, in John's Gospel, when you were studying through that, in chapter 14, Jesus is teaching his disciples about prayer. And he says, chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Does that mean anything you pray, as long as you say, in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of it, that God's going to do that? Is that what he's teaching us? No, that's not at all what he's teaching us. What does that mean? It means if you ask in my name, if you ask consistent with what my revealed will in Scripture is, if you ask with things to advance the kingdom of God, if you ask for those things in my name, I will grant them. He's not bound by our whims just as long as we get the phrasing correct, right? So if you say, dear Lord, please give me $5 million in Jesus' name, amen. But if you pray, Father, give me an opportunity to witness to my neighbor or my coworker or my family member, in Jesus' name, amen, I can just about guarantee you that one's going to get answered. In the affirmative. So this is the same thing. The name of Jesus is powerful, but it's not a magic word. And it's not a mechanism by which you use it and you get what you want. And these men have found this out painfully and quickly. One of the reference books where it talks through um, these verses, one of the references that I used this, to, to prepare for this, when it's describing the word leaped on them, it says, leapt like a panther. I have no idea where they got panther from, but in my mind's eye, that helps me understand what this looked like. Because Luke's writing this, and it is humorous. You think through it, and you've got these guys around, these seven sons. Sceva may be there. I don't know. Maybe not. And they've got the man who was possessed, possibly some of his loved ones, and they're like, hey, we got this foolproof thing. We got this new name, new incantation. It's going to work. You've, you've taken care of the payment, so let's get, let's get down to it. So imagine all of this is happening. They preach or they, they speak to this demon-possessed man and say, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, get out. And he basically laughs at them, jumps on them, and beats the dog out of them right there in front of Whoever else is in that house, so much so that not only are they beaten, it says they leave the house running naked. How more, much more humiliated can you get? You lost. You are going to take the L on this one, right? So there is power in the name of Christ, but these beaten, bruised, bloody, naked guys running through town for their life, out of this house, have learned it's not a magic word. And it is not something you trifle with or you deal with flippantly. Rather than raising the name of Jesus in worship and praise, these men used it as an attempt, as an incantation. They had heard of Paul's ministry and wanted in on it to their Ruin. So make no mistake here, 
This demon-possessed man defeated these men. Not Christ. He did not defeat the name of Christ. He shows us how we are to revere the name of Christ. Through this episode, we see that without the Holy Spirit, these men had no authority to cast out demons. And the demon quickly pointed out that fact. Clearly. But, as the Lord does, even with that humiliation, verse 17, he uses it for his glory. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jew and Greek, and fear fell among them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Fear fell upon the Jews and the Greeks. So you've got these seven guys. I don't know how well-known they are or not well-known they are, but at least um, some or all of them are beaten, bloody, naked, running through town. It's going to draw attention. War is going to get around. Ephesus was a big city, but, hey, people talk, right? So this this story made its way out this became known to all the residents of Ephesus everybody knew about the seven sons of Sceva and their exploits fear fell upon them and the name of the Lord was extolled or praised greatly so God used this mess this this humiliating defeat of these guys who were trying to misuse the name of Christ for personal gain for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom, and for the proclamation of his gospel, people heard and praised Jesus. At this, God used even this to bring praise to himself. It continues on, verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices in 19 and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so Luke is continuing this account by telling us many believers then maybe new believers maybe some who had been converted for some time and are in that process of sanctification And they came to confess and to divulge the things they were doing that were incompatible with a gospel life, a Christian walk. So in in our church at home, we are currently going through the book of Exodus, line by line, verse by verse. Last week, we started on the Ten Commandments, and we got to commandment number one last week. Exodus chapter 20, verse 30, you shall have no other gods before me. And the pastor began the sermon with this, and this is not a direct quote. I was writing, but he was talking fast. So um, this is close, though. So this is what he said. God is not interested in second place in our lives. He's also not interested in a tie for first. He alone is worthy of primary importance in every aspect of every life of every person who has ever lived throughout all of history. Amen. These new believers were learning this. Right? As you are saved, it's not instantly like Christ. It is a progress. Some of us, it is slower than others. And it is lifelong. But it should be marked by progress. It should be marked by looking back 10 years ago 
I should look more like Christ now than I did then. Right? This is what they're learning. They're understanding that there are things in my life that are not compatible with my me saying Christ is my Lord and Savior. You can't have you can't have it both ways. And this these dark arts, this this magic, this sorcery, this incantation, these spell books, whatever you want to call it. These are things that they're understanding. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I am seeking something else to work for me, then I'm breaking the first commandment. I can't go to a fortune teller and say, hey, what's my future hold? I can't go to a magician and say, hey, do you have anything to cure my acne? Right? You, you can't do that and then say, Christ is Lord. They're understanding, I'm breaking the first commandment. I'm putting a God before the God I say I trust. The one God. The true God. God the Father. So as they, as they are understanding this, they come and they confess their deeds in the presence of Paul and other believers. Confessing and divulging their practices. But they didn't come just with words and say, Paul, I'm really sorry. Listen, this is what I've been doing. I've been saying some magic spells. They didn't just do that. That was part of it. There was confession. But then, keep reading, verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. They did this because their affections had been changed. Their desires had been changed. They had gotten a new heart, as God promises us in the Old Testament. Heart of stone will be removed, your heart of flesh will be placed in there. With that new heart come new desires. And as you study God's Word, and as you become more familiar with the things that God calls us to do, calls us to be obedient to, we start recognizing, wait a minute, this is something I've been doing for years, but this is not compatible with walking like Christ. That's got to go. We're called to fight our sin. We're called to put it to death. That's work. That's effort. And that's what they're understanding. They have new desires. And it's tied to being obedient to Christ. And interestingly enough here, what does it say they do? They, they came, brought their books together, and burned them in the sight of all. I have this funny feeling that if this was today, if this was now, the first step would not be, hey, let's get a book of matches. The first step would be, hey, let's check how much these are going for on eBay. Right? That's a first edition by magician XYZ. That should bring a pretty penny. But they didn't want to give it away. They didn't want to sell it. They didn't want that poison that's in it to be spread. They wanted to destroy it. They wanted to be rid of it completely. And that's what they did in the sight of all. They started a bonfire with their magic books. Luke records that at the end of verse 19, 
they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50 pieces of silver. Now, I thought I could be really slick and find a dollar figure to come in here and tell you all this is how much that is. But depending on the exchange rate and which reference you look at, it goes to a few thousand dollars to several million dollars. I don't know how much it is. And Luke's not interested in necessarily giving us a dollar figure, but what Luke is interested in is explaining to us that this was a sacrifice. That this cost them something. That this was not no big deal. This was valuable. But they understood that the sacrifice was made and required to be a faithful gospel witness. And again, this is the beginning says they are now believers. This is the beginning of their sanctification. They are recognizing things. They are confessing things. And that is a direct application to our lives. You say, I've been a Christian 50 years. Praise the Lord. Have you confessed your sin today? We've all got it. It's all something we battle till the end. There is evil in us. There are evil things we do. There are things we do that is not consistent with the written word of God. And we need to confess it. We need to regularly do that. Lamar Mooneyham, one of the things I will never forget, he said this regularly, keep short sin accounts. He said that all the time. Keep short sin accounts. Stay confessed. Work to fight your sin. Work to get rid of it. Work to kill it. Daily, regularly. It's not instantaneous. As you grow and study and learn, we will find things that we come across that go. we, we think, I can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. This is not compatible with my witness and what God has called me to do. This does not make me look more like my Savior. And then the last verse from passage today is familiar. We've seen this in Acts over and over and over. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word goes out and God builds his church. It's what happens in Acts. It's what happens currently. It's phrased a little differently here. The word continued to increase and prevail mightily. Prevail over what? Over those magic scrolls and books that have no power. Word of the Lord is powerful. In it is knowledge of salvation. In it is revelation of who God is, what he expects, and what he has done for us. We've talked a lot today about gospel. We've talked about Paul preaching it. We've gone through what it is. And as we get ready to close this morning, I just want to remind you that you must respond to that. There's, there is no sitting on the fence or being neutral in response to the gospel. Last week you read about Paul packing up and leaving after preaching in the synagogue because people became hard-hearted. 
and speaking evil of the way. So that's when he went to the hall of Tyrannus. But that's what happens. Either you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, and your life is completely turned upside down, or you hear the gospel, you don't believe the gospel, and your heart is hardened. And that's a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place. We're responsible for the things we hear. We're commanded to respond positively to the gospel. So in the text today, we've seen how God has linked power of the risen Christ to the power of Paul's apostolic ministry in building the early church and we've seen how God uses the mundane things of even a sweat rag to heal but God does the work we need to be mindful to pray for one another to pray for those who are sick to be made well all of those things are are good and are commanded of us but God's not required to provide a miracle to appease us Scripture commands that we, with an open Bible, sit down, seek His face, seek His will, and strive to be more like Him. That's what we're called to do, with an open Bible and a prayerful heart. Our text also shows us today that while Christ's name is powerful, it is not mechanical and cannot be picked up and put down at will as the seven sons of Sceva found out the hard way. God works in and through his children to accomplish his tasks, but his name's not a magic word. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what gives us the faith and the power and the ability to live a faithful life in submission to Christ. And then lastly, we see Luke recounts a story of new believers who come to start a bonfire with books and scrolls that they formerly used to serve false gods. So maybe today you, you hear this and you hear the term magician and sorcerer and magic books and incantations and you think, I have nothing to do with that. That's ridiculous. You're right, it is ridiculous. I don't know anybody in here who would go and consult a magician for some need that you have. But the application remains. There are things in our lives that we need to confess There are things in our lives that as these magic scrolls we need to burn up and get rid of. Maybe it's what we look at on the internet. That one probably hits close to home. Maybe it's an immoral relationship that we're involved in that is absolutely contrary to what God explains in Scripture. I don't know what it is. But I pray that as we study and read and ask God to help us, that he will reveal those things to us. And that as he reveals them to us, it's in the process of changing our desire, changing our affection to things above rather than things here. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, We come to you again today thankful for your word. Thankful for the account that you inspired Luke to write so we can see how your early church was built. How you worked in and through those who you called to be your servants. 
Lord, we thank you for that. We ask now that your spirit again would be our teacher. We ask now, Lord, that you would do a work in our heart and in our life and that our desires and our affections would be changed. That they would line up with your word. That they would seek to serve our brothers and sisters. That they would seek to proclaim the gospel clearly and often. Lord, we thank you for what you have done, what you will do. We ask now that through the rest of this service you would do a work in our heart and mind and draw us closer to you. Father, if there is one here who hears these things and doesn't make sense, Lord, I pray that you would not give them a moment's rest until they understand the gospel. That they would ask someone on staff here or me or if they are a visitor who came today just because they're tired of their neighbor asking them and did it to keep them quiet. Lord, have, have them ask them, what is he talking about with sin and death and forgiveness? Lord, may they, may they not have a moment's rest until that's settled. And Lord, we thank you for all of it. In Christ's name, amen.